it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey, it was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. He's down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. You're listening to the One Sensational Shot Network. A very warm welcome once again to the Electronic Labyrinth with me, Fletcher Walton, and I'm joined by Luke Littleboy. And the reason for that is that it's 30 years since Do The Right Thing and I can't get it out of my mind. And I wanted to squeeze another 40 or 50 minutes of chat out of Littleboy on this (laughs) subject. Now, Aidan McCaffrey and I have already talked about the myriad social issues generated by the film this year was the first time that aiden had ever seen do the right thing really uh, no kidding to... well you're the I guy want... that inspired me to watch it i, I still am. i still haven't seen every spike lee film like i've seen i'd say the minority you know i haven't seen loads of his um I, I need to go back i need to fill in some of the blanks in the middle um you know i went to the cinema to see black klansman and um School Days is there, things like that. I need to... There's a whole swathe of Malcolm X, I guess, but there's still a swathe of stuff that I haven't um, seen of his. So I'm loath to call this my favourite, but I would call yeah. it... I would call it... Because I just haven't seen enough of the others. But I would definitely call it one of my favourite films of all time. It's a phenomenal piece of work, and it was because of your recommendation. It was when, it was when I had my um, cultural awakening at university when I met you, and... Um, you thought I was all right because you'd seen a demo tape I was making for the student radio and you saw the bands I was into and you thought, hey, yeah. this kid knows a thing or two. I'm gonna I was take... mightily impressed, really was. Um, <laughs> I'm going I'm to take him under my wing. But you, yeah. still, but yeah. you, then, you, then, took, you then introduced me to stuff that I just hadn't been turned on to. Do the Right Thing was one of those films, for sure. Wow. I'm, I'm very pleased that I could... I'm very pleased that I could push you in the direction of something so bloody important. And, and this is uh, one of the things that Aidan and I were discussing about it. So we got into the, the social issues around it and the, the long conversation that he and I had. It began with a discussion of what it meant to see that film for the first time in 2019. I mean, it's been in my life for 20 years. It's been on release for 30 years. And then we talked more about um, race in America. And a number of things, but what I realised was that I, I was guilty of a dereliction of duty to this, this, the very cinema of Do the Right Thing. There are films out there about important themes and about important people, and some of those films aren't great films, don't snap 
and uh, don't deploy cinema with the same dexterity that Spike Lee does and do the right thing. And I, I chatted with Aidan and there was so much to talk about. And then I thought, no, what we need to do is an electronic labyrinth, a critical analysis as far as Luke will allow me to drag him through scene by scene to nail the specifics of how this motherfucker pops off the screen because I, mm. I found myself with Aiden. I was t- talking too much about vibrancy. That it sounded like I was speaking in code, and what I meant was mm. when I say diversity and vibrancy, I mean there's mm. black people in it. But no, it's it's the language of cinema that's that's deployed oh, so well by Spike Lee. And th- th- I'll open by saying you watch the thing, and then you think, hold on, the lead directed it. That's amazing. So even more than Woody Allen when he's in his own pictures, the, the lead directed it. And like uh, I would compare Spike Lee to. Martin Scorsese, in terms of his mastery of cinema. Mm. Scorsese doesn't act as... He isn't the lead role in his own pictures. Mm. I don't know how you run a set. You've got Wynne Thomas designing the thing, um, Ernest Dickerson shooting it. You look through the viewfinder, you step away, you say, Ern, that's cool. Right, now I'll go and do some acting. What? (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote it as well. And I wrote it as well. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. And and what struck me is um, I am 32 years of age this year. Uh, this guy, this guy was making uh, this movie at thirty-two. Um, yeah, and 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 like you say, was starring in it and was bringing in the right people um, to tell the story of the film in a striking visual language. We can certainly do a scene by scene blow. Um, I mean, on that note, the opening is is very special. It's a music video within a film. Uh, yeah. It's uh, Rosie Perez dancing uh, on her own on a stage to um, fight the power which really does become a running thread through the film as a piece of music. Uh, am I right in saying it was commissioned for the film? Was it a hit yeah. just prior to it? I believe yeah, it I, was for the film. And I think that's, that's forgotten, yeah, that's isn't a, it? Yeah, that's essentially correct. The use in the film predated its release on an album. Mm. Chuck D did this for Spike Lee. Mm. Um, the very first thing we hear, 40 Acres and a Mule comes up, and yeah. then we hear Lift Every Voice, which I understand is considered an alternative national anthem for African-Americans as compared to Star Spangled Banner. Did not know and that. I, like, I love that opening. It, it's Spike Lee all over. Spike Lee, who utterly schooled and um, immersed in all of cinema. He's so and, aware the, of, uh, of, of Scorsese. Oh, yeah. he's, a big, he's a big fan of Scorsese, isn't he? He always works with respect to the filmmakers that have come before him, but that moment feels like an acknowledgement and a summation of black history in America to that point. Uh, History right up to the present day in just eight seconds. Lift every voice. And then, boom, 1989. Here we are. Mm. I I really like the, the, the the, the positioning of the narrative there. It's almost as though in just a few notes, Mm -hmm. it expresses the progress that's been made up to that point. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we're in the present day, and now we're we're dealing with the here and now, and it's it's fight the power, it's Chuck D and Flavor Flav. So I'm pretty sure I'm pre- I'm pretty sure Chuck D came back with the tune, and um, Spike Lee said to him, "Go back and do it again. It's not quite good enough." And then he came back with fight the power. Because um, to, to yes. prep to prep for this, I did watch the um, do the right thing director's commentary on the DVD, which is actually um, just a it's repurposed from the '95 Laserdisc. Uh, director's commentary. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. all pretty fresh. So everyone's talking about it in the past tense, 
but it's actually only a few years ago that it was made. What's quite incredible, um, and I'm sure you touched on this with Aidan, actually, if, if you were talking about the cultural um, impact of the film, um, I'm sure you were touching upon uh, some of the critics at the time. Um, I think Joe Joe Klein was a political columnist who was talking about how the movie would it was likely to spark an actual riot in the street um, yeah. of, of black minorities. Um, it's interesting that people are talking about it in the past tense, only five or six years after it was released. And, and the, the travel that obviously everyone had been since then, they were actually saying in, in the commentary, it's goofy to think that, you know, like, like by this point, you know, white audiences were scared of this. They weren't turning up to the cinema to see it because they thought yeah. they were going to get mugged. Um, and and that, that by the time they're doing the commentary, it's post Malcolm X. It, he's more of a mainstream director. It's, it's been accepted um, uh, a little bit at that point, at least. And that, that's the other funny thing as well, because by this point, the director's commentary is recorded in the mid '90s when he's kind of held up in Hollywood um, on a bit of a pedestal. And then later in his career, that would not necessarily be the case. And he's he's now on the upswing again, going through a renaissance. But um, yeah, uh, that that was interesting to me. I thought, hell yeah, '95. I guess he's like a, a bit of a career high high note by this point. This is interesting that they're recording uh, the commentary in that context. Um, so where was I going with that? Sorry, just the fact that yes, I had listened to the commentary. Uh, it was recorded in '95 um, from the Laserdisc, and 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 I'm one of the tidbits of information was definitely Spike Lee said, I w- I said to Chuck, uh, go back and start again, and then he came back with Fight the Power. So that was why I thought um, uh, that's completely forgot. I feel like that's uh, you know forgotten from history a little bit that um, it how connected the, the it is to the film, and we can certainly go through in chronological order a little bit more. But that song definitely sets up at the beginning of the movie um how black power is coming you know 1989 is here and um and it, there's a two or three moments throughout the film where it is used as a kind of reprise as a theme uh for that and there's a moment um one of the more significant ones is when um um radio rahim has his boombox and he's playing it in front of the latino guys who are listening yeah. to, to their music <laughs> and their boombox can't keep up with it and it's a deathly serious like western standoff you know these two guys yeah. turning up the volume on their boombox and the latino guys their boombox can't quite keep up it's not really played for laughs as such until the end of the scene where um radio rahim it, it, it we definitely know that hip-hop is coming you know that radio rahim asserts his dominance culturally in that sense and then, and then it's the only moment where you you actually get to relax is the he walks down the street. The camera is on a crane shot, you know, coming up from the street uh, as you're leaving. And then he just gives that little black kid a high five. The, the, yeah. He's like a six year old kid. Um, and it's a that's played for last, but also yeah, it's a victory moment as well. He won the he won the standoff, right? Yeah, I, I like that you've mentioned immediately how much like a western that part is because there's other points in the picture when Ernest and Spike make uh, put the camera at a Dutch angle mm-hmm. and uh, particularly uh, at the climax as Bugging Out and Radio Rahim come back into Sal's. And because this text has been so elementary to me for such a long time, just like with a number of Coen Brothers pictures, it takes me a while to get back into it and in a way almost watch it with the sound off and realise, God damn, the things it's doing, I knew it was doing these things, but it was um, I absorbed them at such a young age that I almost forgot to notice them. And then mm. in that standoff when they're back in sales and it's at a canted angle and you think, yeah, this is just like the Western. This is this is the climax. It's um, it's Spike 
overtly framing it as as a duel, which is what I think the film is. Um, I've realised that scene by scene, it's a series of confrontations and conversations, but it's it's so natural in the way that it's done. This is what I mean. When I was watching it for the first time, aged maybe 14, and then watching it when I was 19 and 25, I never felt that I was being preached to. But there must be 30 instances in the film, and we'll go through a few of them, where we're given two points of view. Mm. Um, the first confrontation, or at least conversation, is between Demare and mother-sister. When he turns up and she shouts back at him, he's uh, placid and um, friendly, pleasant, and she's hectoring mm-hmm. and uh, pushes him away. Over the course of the film, they'll yeah, grow cool, closer. Yeah, calls him an old drunk and stuff, yeah. What did I tell you about drinking in front of my stoop? Move on, you're blocking my view. You are ugly enough. Don't stare at me. The evil eye doesn't work on me. Mother, sister, you've been talking about me for 18 years. What have I ever done to you? You are a drunk fool. Besides that, the mayor don't bother nobody. And nobody don't bother the mayor, but you. The man just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I even love you. Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love. One day, you're going to be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're going to be nice. At least civil. The mirror mother sister speak overtly poetically in, uh, with um, like a classical theatricality to them. Mr. Senior Love Daddy does the same thing. He's constantly employing antimetaboly. What can I say? Say what I can. That seems, rep- to me, that seems representative of the duels within the film themselves. Um, there's a, a consistent through line, but when, a, when a, a position is presented, but then takes on new meaning when it's reversed, but we can uh, respect and understand and sympathise with both of them. Where, uh, with the Puerto Ricans and Radio Rahim, that's Ruben Blades never known how to pronounce his name because for the longest time I thought he was Ruben Blades mm. and then I found out he was Latino <laughs> and I thought well maybe maybe it's Blades then but Ruben Blades and Public Enemy uh, that sound clash and you're right it, it, he's a very articulate character when he finally does his uh, when he finally explains love and hate like Robert Mitchum in Night the Hunter he does love and hate to Mookie and he explains that well, with great articulation he certainly does and um, again if we're talking of devices um that uh, Lee's employing here, um, it's a wonderful moment because he has the love and hate. Uh, they're not knuckle dusters, are they, as such? Um, is that what you'd call them? Um, I think it's fair to call them that, yeah, yeah. That's what the cops would call them anyway. But yeah, it's, it's rings, but ha- full finger rings. Yeah. Um, Bars. So he has those, and, and he then clearly explains um, uh, to the audience what they mean. Because the, the camera then slips in front of Mookie, you know, so you're suddenly in Mookie's point of view. You're looking directly at Radio Rahim as he's staring directly at you. And he's yeah. pre- presenting fist one, which is love, fist two, which is hate. He's explaining how one um, one begats the other. The, the, the both work in a sense of balance. Um, 
you know, very articulately, but in a stylized way as well, because he's he's talking about how essentially how you know he's he'll punch you with both, you know, love and hate, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it very much sets up the again running themes throughout the film. So we, I think we have to if we're talking about themes and devices, I don't think we can go from beginning to end. We do have to dart around a little bit. Of course, it's it's no secret we all know those of us who've seen the film that at the end it ends on two before the credits roll ends on two quotes one from martin luther king one from um malcolm x one presenting a message of of love and how that's the way forward in the world uh because um hate just takes you down a spiral and there's nothing there it's not it's not constructive and then of course malcolm x presenting more the argument around violence at least and um violence and self-defense and how he doesn't think of um of that as um, self-defense as violence, he calls it intelligence. I'm paraphrasing horrifically, but um, setting up these two ideas, and like you alluded to as well, never any of these points. So the film is called Do the Right Thing. There's an obvious moment at the end. There's an obvious incident at the end where we are all, as the audience, uh, led to the question: Did Mookie do the right thing? But you're actually right. There's a series of confrontations throughout the film where you ask yourself, what is the right thing there? And we are presented with the idea of love, the idea of hate, the idea of conflict resolution and different ways to go about it. And um, never does the never ever does the film talk down to you or patronise you. Um, yeah. And and not to, not to um, go off on too much of a tangent, but it's actually painfully obvious. Like we had the Oscar debate uh, a few episodes ago at the turn of the year, and we were talking about the Green Book. And we, you know, I think I came out in defence of it a little bit, where I was, where I sort of said, well, you know, people. People don't like the Green Book, and um, you know, it's, it's, I think it didn't Spike Lee even kind of storm out halfway through, like as, as they was nominated, yeah. as, as he lost <laughs> lost out to it, with Black Klansman. Um, yeah. And he, it, oh god, he made a really good one liner as well. I can't remember. Oh, it reminds me of because uh, it was a repeat of, of the nineties, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And he, oh, it was whenever a black guy's driving because of. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, because of Morgan yeah. Freeman. Because it, uh, it the, yeah, was it whenever black guys Daisy. in the car I lose? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say yeah. that was funny. That was really funny. Yeah. Um, he's a funny guy. It's, it's funny to think that uh, thirty years later Hollywood somehow, and I, I don't actually mean this. I'm being a little bit mischievous, just like Spike would be. But progress to Hollywood is well. Uh, in 1989, the black guy was driving the car, but then in 2018. He's the passenger, so you know. But he is the talent, is though. He is the. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Uh, what, what I was gonna say. What I was gonna say was, I came out in defence of it because I kind of said, well, you know, like if it's got a positive message, um, and if if certain audiences aren't ready for Black Klansmen, and 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 at least we're still promoting something with a good message or, or whatever. But actually, yeah. I can completely see like where he's coming from because that's a film that's so heavy-handed. Look, this is the message. The message is racism bad do the yeah. right thing never it assumes racism is bad like that, that that's a given but what it says is how do you deal with this and it never does yeah. it talk down to you and never does it uh, tell you what you should or shouldn't think and that's the wonderful thing about it as well um in the commentary that that's discussed that a lot of white audiences at the time were more worried about the destruction of property at the end mookie obviously did the wrong thing because that that's terrible that that business was made with his bare this guy's bare hands and the property was destroyed he did the wrong thing that was the wrong way to deal with it yeah, he's not saying that. He doesn't come out either way, in my opinion. You know, so um, I didn't want to dart around too much, but my God, um, no, you have to with a picture like this because what Spike does is he presents every argument 
uh, and he he develops characters which are both sympathetic and aggravating and funny mm-hmm. and at times somber but he presents every argument fairly robustly and that some of those arguments are arguments that Spike agrees with himself some of them he's doing for the benefit of the characters the central argument that Bugging Out is making about representation yeah. is one that personally Spike disagrees with Spike's yeah. opinion as he says on the commentary and as he said elsewhere Spike's opinion is uh, he's hard on black people he's as hard on his own people as, as anybody would be and he says, if you want representation, make your own business. Yeah, then which you is what put Sal, whoever you want on the wall. Which, which is what Sal says. He says, get your own business, yeah. and and uh, then you can put uh, your, your your uncle, your brother, you can put whoever you want on the wall. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. he's right, like to an extent. Like, well, you know, why be so beaten down? Because the, the old guys, you know, looking out at the Koreans, like going, um, man, they they just got in off some boat, and there they are, like with this business. You know, yeah. kind of what gives them the right. Doesn't one of the guys even turn to his mate and say, "Like, dude, you you could have done that. Like, you didn't. You're sitting here." I, I, like, it's, one of, it's one of my favourite digressions in the film. Again, it's it Spike presenting both sides of the argument. So on one hand, he's got ML who's saying that shop was boarded up for more years than I care to remember, and those Korean motherfuckers have been off the boat two years, and already they've got a business up and running in a black neighbourhood. And uh, then Coconut Sid is kind of endorsing that opinion as well, but. A little bit like Mookie, who within the film, I think, is... He's Loki. He's the trickster. He doesn't take a side until the end. He doesn't even, he doesn't participate until the very end. And I think, to interject myself, I think that's what the right thing is. He finally participates. There's a number of characters in the film mm. that what that survey the action, and that's Mookie, and that's the corner men, and uh, Mr. Senior Love Daddy, Sam mm. Jackson. They, they observe but they don't participate and Mookie realizes over time he must participate it's his, it's um that's his hero's journey to go mm. from strictly mercantile to participate to take a side and then at the end as he says i've got to get paid i got to, he says i've got to get paid i've got to go and see my kid mm. and that's him growing up but um uh yeah that moment with the corner men where at first, two of them are criticising the Koreans, and then Sweet Dip Willie interjects, and he says, I'm going to go and spend some of my money over there, you know? You're always saying, uh, you're always giving us this Keith Sweat shit. Someday I'm going to do this, someday I'm going to do that. You're not going to do anything. And then what I really like, he says, and you, Coconut, you've got some way of talking. You're off the boat yourself. And you think, yeah, yeah he's, he's West Indian, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, I, one of the my favourite yeah, things true, about the actually. film. Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. It's just, it's I all so honest. That. No, yeah, this is it, yeah. yeah. I love the honesty of it. I love that he Spike Lee has um, specifically places black characters that put rejoinders. So, for instance, another one of my favourite bits is... Um, Bugging Out's got a good point about representation. As he says, much black money is spent in that establishment, mm-hmm. and it isn't unreasonable to think that they could have Muhammad Ali on the wall, or Eddie Murphy, or Prince, or Magic... Mm. Um, but at the same time, while he's saying that, you know, he's making those arguments. And outside, uh, there's a mural of, of Mike Tyson, Brooklyn's own Mike Tyson. And then when he's talking to Joao Lee's character, Jade, and she says, uh, I took a note of it. She says, I'm down for something positive in the community bugging out. You know, if you were to put your energies in the right way, then we might have something to talk about. Bugging out is a very 2019 character. You know, you, you take a... You take something successful, thriving, perhaps a cornerstone of a community. Any, anyway, something that people are enjoying, and you say, "Yeah, well, where are the X? 
Yeah. Where yeah. Are, where yeah. are the Y? Oh yeah. yeah. If that's good enough, then where's the Z? You know, and uh, mm-hmm. and bugging out gets as I say. He's right on one hand, but on the other hand, as the people talk to him, he goes around and he says, Boycott sounds famous, and they say, no fucking way, I love pizza. I've been mm. eating there for 25 years. The mayor, we need your leadership. I'm organizing a boycott of sounds famous. Shit. Hey, keep walking, doctor. I don't want to hear none of your damn black foolishness. Damn. Juice. No, man. No. No. Hell no, goddammit. Sal ain't never done none of you before, man, and me neither. Hear me? What you ought to do is boycott that goddamn barber that fucked up your head. Yeah, hey, <laughs> man. Shit. Hell, come around here fucking with sweet dick, will you? Go on, man. Get out of here. Get the fuck yeah, away, man. Go on, beat it. Would you like to sign a petition to boycott Sal's famous pizzeria? What? What? Man, I ain't boycotting Jack, you string cheese head motherfucker. I'm about to go get a slice right now. Shit, I was born and raised on Styles Pizza. What the fuck Jeez. you talking about? You crazy, man. As good as the motherfucking pizza is. Black Panther pizza, weed pizza, <laughs> boy. I do it without your help. Uh, I think this shows Spike Lee's mastery of cinema. It took me years and years until you realise it's, it's, it's a... Uh, a lineup, a straight lineup of twenty or thirty duels, but it feels so naturalistic because he spends the first fifteen twenty minutes setting up the neighbourhood. One of my favourites. I'll go on to this one briefly as well. I wrote an essay about this at university. It's one of the best things I ever did at uni fourteen years ago. I remember. Um, I've read <laughs> it. Might rec- that was. I read I, the. I read your essay on this film before I saw the film. Really? Oh my days! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I. Why? And I don't think we even watched it together. I think I quietly without talking to you about it or mentioning it, went out and just bought it. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, because it would. Yeah, I'm, I may have been intolerable to watch it with. <laughs> Not that I quote things while they're happening, but I, I am a little bit... When I was in my 20s, I was a little bit nudging with the elbow. Mum, um, you're not watching! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when um, John Savage in Cameo as Clifton rolls past bugging out, and what we have there is a white man mm. in a Larry Bird Boston Celtics throwback mm-hmm. scuffing the Jordans mm. of a black man. Mm-hmm. And then we have a conversation about gentrification. Yeah, because he, he just bought the whole house. It's a sign of things to come. You know, if you went to that neighbourhood now, the fictional neighbourhood now, not the literal and it's, street. It's, the duel there is literally the great white hope of American basketball presented against the new black hero, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan... And there you've got white against black. And uh, uh, once again, as Spike has so expertly done, they've both got their points. From John Savage's, from Clifton's point of view, it is a free country. And if you mm. have the means, why not move to a place? And we could we could understand the argument that Clifton would think, I want to move to a vibrant, up-and-coming uh, community. Because this, this gentrification argument, it's like a wheel of gentrification in London. Every seven years it goes somewhere else. At the moment, it's just about still in Brentford. I'm sure soon it will go to Hounslow or some other place back east that I don't even know about. But that's when you it's, it's not unreasonable for people to think to, to want to do what Clifton is doing. But it's also an economic uh, decision because he knows that that red brick in, in five, ten years will be worth you know, X amount more. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, part of it's wanting to enjoy the community, but it's also an econ- it's an economic decision that he's made uh, that, yeah. that will result in um, you know him bettering himself in the future. There's a wonderful performative aspect about it as well, and I'll use this to link back to one of my favourite filmmaking techniques in it, which is I think you'll b- dig this as well. You're into musicals. 
it's stagey. I and I love how um, so much of the movie stagey. I'm, pl- I'm pleased you're bringing the, this up. And the, 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 sorry, it's tableaus, isn't it? It's actually yeah. tableaus. Yeah. Love so, it. so so much of the film is a stage. So one of the obvious things people have said, um, and I don't think it's necessarily conscious, but a lot of people have said this is West Side Story. You know, there's characters, <laughs> yeah. there's characters leaning into the the camera. Like you're right during this confrontation when he's just trying to get up his stoop with his bike, but he's scuffed the Jordans. All the black guys are up in his grill, and they're they're all in the yeah. frame. You know, it does feel like the Jets, you know, or something, the gang like in, yeah. in your face, you know, from, from your point of view as you're looking into the camera. Um, but to go back to my where I kicked off, just the beginning of the movie um, is very obviously on a soundstage. So they made a conscious decision with this film not to film on a soundstage, not to film on a backlot and film instead in a real neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, the reason being because they, they didn't want it to... They wanted to have an air of authenticity. And even when characters go indoors um, to apartment buildings and stuff, if Mookie's delivering a pizza or visiting his girlfriend or visiting his son and they go into an apartment building, they are real apartment buildings uh, that were on the street. Again, gives an air of authenticity because on some level, you know when it's a set. We all do. And uh, you know when it, it feels a little bit like a back lot. It feels like, you know, a Warner Brothers picture in the 50s or, or you know, Sesame Street. Um, but nevertheless... He does a great deal of goes through a great deal of time, energy, and effort to um, to choreograph. So at the beginning, we have the dance scene, um, and you were talking about the vibrancy. It's incredibly, um, like I said, a music video within a film. There's 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 projected color, you know, color banks of color that, that are projected onto the back backdrop of, uh, of of Brooklyn. It's very obviously on a soundstage, and for me, it's harkening back to a classic Hollywood musical. But of course, with yeah. fight fight the power as as the piece um and and then throughout the film okay it's not on the stage not on the not on the sound stage but 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 we've already been told that 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 this is hearkening to that hearkening back to to that choreographed uh, musical element and one of the things that's incredible i think one of my favorite aspects of the film is the tapestry that you get of the of the intergenerational interracial ensemble cast um, yes. because yeah. we get these beautiful crane shots when Mookie is leaving, you know, Sal's to then go and visit the place he needs to deliver a pizza or, or, or go on his lunch or whatever. And the, the crane, the, the camera, the dolly you know, comes up and we can see like other characters like bugging out, whoever it is, like Radio Rahim. Like th- coming out of a building just behind him to go into another one, and someone else, Demers sitting on a stoop or something. Yeah, and it's so choreographed to the point where it kind of does look staged and fake, but but still delivers this tremendous sense of authenticity where where you go that that's the pe- that is the cast of characters that is our tap our community tapestry of the day the people living working eating breathing, making love, shitting, trying to make dollar, yeah. beat the heat. Uh, do you know what I mean? It, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's, re- it's my favourite element of the film. It's just seeing someone will be having a conversation, but in the background, you'll see another character who's a, who's a main character just doing nothing, like scratching their ass practically. You know, it's great. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, you're right. They're, uh, they're all their living lives. I mean, the, um, they had a real pizza oven put into Sal's Famous. Danny Aiello and Johnny Turturro and Richard Edson, to an extent, learned how to make pizza, mm-hmm. um, and that I think that speaks to the the authenticity. And for the first time 
in a long time, I, I better understood what hyperrealism means. Mm. When we talk about how it feels like it's on stage, it's because uh, characters on stage are always on. And it's the sort of thing where I remember I went to see Buried Child with my old man. And while the audience is filtering in, Ed Harris is asleep on the couch on stage. And me and my dad see a fil- we see one or two plays a year. He, he understands the artifice of plays, but nevertheless, when we got in and he realised he's already there and he's pretending to be asleep. Mm. Oh, that's really good. You know, he hadn't, my dad hadn't seen something like that before. But that's what Do the Right Thing feels like the entire time. The, the wonderful tableaus that are created with, um, I think the first one is uh, Armoured Punchy, C and Ella. When mm. they call for, uh, Ella calls for Ahmed, I think, to come out. And then they're, they're doing their thing, you know, uh, Martin Lawrence's C is uh, miming, shooting hoops. And you and I, we're suckers for this, aren't we? It's so easy to please us, but it's like with Spielberg. If you get every head in shot... yeah. Yeah, it, it just it feels yeah. good. It it fills the frame. It what it does as well is it it creates importance for those characters. It makes them we feel that they're worth remembering because the frame has indicated to us here's four heads. Keep an eye on those. They you know whether or not they they may have ten lines in the film, but you know their face now. Spike's old man Bill, Bill Lee, with Bramford Marsalis. Splendid. Spike eventually went full Aaron Copeland on He Got Game, but this one for me is beyond words. Oh, gosh. What should we look at next? I think that I'll I'll take us right back to the opening. Mm. Um, The film sets its stall out immediately, and if I was watching it for the first time at 36 or 30, once I'd understood the language of cinema... And that not all films are this good. Mm. I think I'd immediately yeah. realise, fucking hell, we're on to something here, you know. It starts with Wake Up, which is a continuation. Wake Up! That's a continuation yeah. of the end of school days. And then the radio station is called We Love Radio. And at the very start of the film, Sam Jackson's We Love Radio. And at the very end of the film, Mookie says, hate. It's that uh, that binary the entire time. And you just mentioned as well how um, it's not just speaking about love and hate. And it's not just speaking about white and black or in this instance... Italian American yeah. and African American, yeah. but there's intergenerational conflict as well. One of my favourite scenes is when the mayor uh, has a conversation with the four street kids. I ain't going out like that, man. You walk up and down this block like you own it. For real, <laughs> you, yes, I know. You so old, you're like a fossil. Oh, man, you a bum, man. You're an old drunk zero, man. <laughs> now what do you got to say for yourself? What you know about me? Can't even pee straight. Nary a one of you. What you know about anything? 
unless you, unless you done stood in the door and listened to your five hungry children crying for bread. And you can't do a damn thing about it, your woman standing there. You, you can't even look her in the eye. Unless you done done that, you don't know me, my pain, my hurt, my feelings. You don't know shit, though, man. No, let him finish. Let the old man finish. Don't call me bum. Don't, don't call me a drunk. It's disrespectful. I know your mamas and your papas raised you better. Yo, man, I hope you finish your little soliloquy, man. Because first of all, I've been peeing straight for years. You understand what I'm saying? And, and you're right. I, I wouldn't stand in the doorway and listen to my five children go hungry. I'd be out getting a job, doing something, anything to put food in their mouth. And you're right. I don't want to know your pain. I don't care to know your pain. You're the one to put yourself in this situation, man. Every day, every day, every day, I see you walk up and down this block, inebriated. Never sober. But that's what DA stands for. Demaya, drunk ass. Fuck that. This man's getting me mad. He don't get no respect here. You'll never get respect here, boy. How you gonna tell me how my parents raised me? I respect those who respect themselves. That's the interesting thing, because I think in that moment, what we're meant to understand is that he's as angry as he is because he doesn't want to be the mayor. He doesn't want to become drunk ass, mm. but he knows his future might. He's a, his road in life might incorporate that kind of future. Mm. And that's why he's so afraid. It's the same thing. I mean, Mookie says this directly to uh, Pino. Why do you say you hate black people, but it sounds like you want to be a black person. <laughs> and then he says, you know what? You know what they say about uh, dark Italians, don't you? And your hair's even kinkier than mine. And there's that thing, it's like... It's when he's talking about... Uh, the, the, the interesting thing for me there... Because I, I don't hear this as an argument so much now, but I, I used to a lot more. Um, it sounds almost unbelievable to say it, but he says, like, you almost want to be black. Like, think, who, who's your favourite sports star, Michael Jordan? Who's your favourite uh, comedian, actor, uh, Eddie Murphy? Who's your favourite um, pop star, Prince? They're all black dudes. You know, it sounds like you want to be black. And he says, no, they're beyond black. I can't explain yeah. it. They're like more than black, it's what, and it's like what people said about OJ, and you know, then you marry yeah, white, yeah. And, and suddenly you become acceptable to white America if you go beyond being black. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like that's so much of an argument anymore. I, I could be wrong. I could be out of touch. Within the context of the film, it's a really interesting argument, and it obviously because racism is by its very nature, it's dumb. It's ill thought out, and it exposes how dumb Pino's opinions on it are. To to see him struggle to explain. They're black, but they're not black. They're they're more than black. Uh, it it uh, it's something different, mm. you know. Yeah. And uh, as as I was saying, Ahmed is uh, is afraid of the mayor, and that's why he's angry with the mayor. And Pino, in some ways, is afraid of blackness. He's economically dependent upon it. Mm. Like when he's having the conversation with Sal, and he says, "My friends back in Bensonhurst, they make fun of me. They say, go sling the pizzas for the moolies." Sal, quite reasonably, I mean, it sounds like such a dad thing to say, but he says, "If they're making fun of you, they're not your friends." Mm. But it, it's it's true, and and that's the reason why he hates them so is because he's he's so dependent on them. They haven't they haven't done anything to him. Oh, but that conversation um, precedes the moment that most people remember, which is the racial epithets to camera the fast zooms into the characters. But I, I, I think for its, that has great impact, but for its honesty, I prefer that preceding scene. Now, remember as well, I bet you noticed this, it plays out in front of uh, a painting depicting Roman ruins. Mm -hmm. So there you've got an Italian and an African-American, mm -hmm. and soon the conversation becomes <laughs> about um, Johnny Turturro saying, I've been listening to your leaders, and you're talking about the, the great day will come. Once mm -hmm. again, you'll rise... And then you woke up. When was this? Uh, this and Mookie says we invented civilization, mm. right? And then you think, well, 
but so did the Romans and so did the Egyptians. Everybody had their shot, you know. And yeah, it was, yeah. It's uh, ironic and piquant that they're discussing this in front of the the fall of the great Roman Empire. Yeah. But yeah. then the black civilization predates even that. Yeah. So they're in a way they're both they're both winners and they're both losers. They be, they barely even know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That and that's just a tiny piece of set design. But we we talk about this a lot. Um, I've got another point to make on this as well. But we talk about this a lot. If it's on screen, it's likely it's put there for a reason. Yeah. It needs to be considered. It's not just Kubrick that has a <laughs> rationale for everything that you see. If it's on screen, especially in a picture like Do the Right Thing, especially if it's shot on a soundstage as well. It's there for a reason. Now, Luke, you inspired my thinking on this one. Um, and it's a little thing you said. When you've been watching films for as long as we have, you just pick stuff up. You remember when we were talking about Predator? Mm-hmm. And you said they, cro- they cross a log and it's crossing a bridge and we yeah. all know what that means. Yeah. Point of no return. Yeah. And I realise as well that so often in films there's, uh, there's love and hate, good and evil. There's a positive representation and a negative representation. And about, let me check, I think it's about half half an hour into the film, the kids, well, uh, there's a great montage of how hot it is. Can't stand it, you know you can't stand yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't stand the heat. And so the kids open up the hydrant. Yeah. They're playing in the hydrant, the kids come along. Uh, there's that great scene with Frank Vincent. I want them under the jail, that bit. Yeah. So the first time in the movie that they open the hydrant, it's positive. And then we have a reprise, and it's the flip side of that. Later on in the picture, when Sales is on fire, mm-hmm. and that's one of the saddest things, is that the, the fire, the um, the firefighters arrive, the firemen arrive, mm. and then they turn the hoses on the residents. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And it's, it's this grim pastiche of what had earlier in the day been just a playful uh, expression and, and a bit of mischief, and now... It's the flip side of that is just awfulness. And I mean, there's a point as well. During the riot, the cop on the bullhorn says, this is your last chance, go back to your homes. And you hear someone in the background shout, this is our home. Yeah. Uh, and then they turn the hoses, instead of putting out, instead of two hoses on the burning building, Yeah. they spend their time turning it on the residents of that neighbourhood. Yeah. And it's that shows, that's the I think in the film, that's one of the best uh, representations of how things have turned so wrong in just the course of about 12 hours. Yeah, really incredible stunts in that as well. There's some people doing some yeah. pretty incredible flips over cars and stuff. Like it's, uh, you know, th- this is was not a big, um, big, big budget movie. Um, it's incredible what these guys did with um, with what they had. And very limited indie budget. And the, um, not to go off on too much tangent, but there's contemporary making of film from... Sorry, from the time it's an hour long, and um, it's pretty much fly on the wall. I mean, yeah, I, there's there's direct camera talking heads as well, but they they really are looking. They interview a lot of the residents of the location, and what's really incredible, you almost think there's a very naive white guy thing I'm about to say here, where you almost think, oh yeah, Spike Lee, black director, I bet he went in there and was like really welcomed with, uh, you know, to to come make the movie there. Well, of course not. He yeah. he was part of the man, according to these guys. You know, like you know, yeah. they these guys had to be. These were really poor people who had to be convinced. These are the real residents of the street. You have to be convinced that you had to have someone there for eight weeks and disrupt your entire life, and you wouldn't be able to leave your house and go about your business. And they're telling you to be quiet. Can you keep it down in your flat in your apartment, please? Because we're filming and we're shooting. Um, it's incredible. And these are genuinely people who are deprived and do not have an education and and do not have a job and um 
are at the arse end of society, you know. It's incredible to see them um, uh, interviewed and just how, how, what their reaction uh, to, to all of this is. And, of course, yes, they did try and win Hearts and Minds and they did try and do a few community projects to get to, to put in some, a little bit of infrastructure and they did try and employ as many people as humanly possible to, 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 to make the picture. Um, my, my point there, sorry not to go off into a tangent, sorry, is that... Um, uh, where, what was my point there, Fletch? Where was I going with that? What were we talking no, I, about? I like that you've raised it because the, the, it can't be denied. Again, both points of view. It can't be denied that the making of the film and ostensibly Hollywood movie production that decamps to a, a Bedford-Stuyvesant neighbourhood mm-hmm. and then leaves again six weeks later, that's enacting what Sal does. He rolls up mm. in his glitzy white car at the beginning of the day all the way from Bensonhurst, doesn't live among these people. All the money that he makes from them, mm-hmm. he takes out and spends elsewhere. He's a colonialist. Mm. But at the same time, the very nature of making that movie in that real neighbourhood is very similar. And it, you can't get around it. And um, as we saw in the in the production documentary, much was done to clean up the area. They brought in the fruit of Islam and those guys don't fuck about they're hard on crack and hard on the causes of crack Mm. and so as much as possible was done to ameliorate the circumstances and provide work day labor Mm. and more for those residents and yet um you know the the dumb observations and objections that they come up with are as stupid as any vox pop on the bbc news at six Mm. the people cannot go to the stores they cannot you know they cannot get breakfast for their children now all right think about the children just got out of school Right, children just got out of school. They cannot even go anywhere. They can't even go to the parks. They can't. I think that they should have made some arrangements for all the children that just got out of it. It's because their vacation is all messed up. They don't have no time for themselves. They can't go in and out of their blocks. They can't even play even on their own block. You understand? When that, I think that they should have made some arrangements that the children would have something to do every day. When that they don't have to, you know, you know, um, be bothered really, you know, when while they're doing the film. But then I think that the grown-ups should also be compensated because there's things that they have to do also, and the people that go to work also. You know, and then they can't even, you know, do, you know, they can't do anything. They're all right, you're in your house, you're looking at TV or whatever you might be doing. And someone there saying, shh, you know, keep it down, walk soft, wait a minute. I mean, my goodness, this is your everyday living. I mean, that you, you're used to this, this. Hey, listen, how is somebody going change, to change that? And that, that's a great part of it, of, of everything, when someone has to change your, your way of living. You know, and that's a very great inconvenience. And I think they should be paid for it. And I'm one of them think that I should be paid for it. That's now, we it. all knew in the first place, we knew that we were going to have to have a little inconvenience. They told us this from the giddy-up. Uh, a you little. Know, well, it's not that bad. But I mean, bad. two months, two months is the whole summer. As adherents of cinema, you want to say to that guy, you don't, understa- you don't understand what's being made right now. It's the best film that will be produced for 30 years. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, Get out of my street, man. I just mm. want to go to the corner store. Um, but both both arguments are valid. I, this is what I bloody love. This is Hollywood likes it. Uh, I'm, I'm generalising, of course, but there is a, a conformist section of Hollywood which better appreciates films about race where racism and racial disharmony was something that happened 50 years ago. And if we can end the film with harmony, like in Green Book, where they, he goes around for dinner and they have dinner, and he probably says something like, I think we got some fried chicken for you out back. Ah, yeah, you're all right. <laughs> you know, they, they prefer that to a film like Do the Right Thing, which presents every argument, both sides, uh, young and old, white and black, even like rich and poor. And at the end of it, essentially says, uh, make your own decision. 
what, what one of my favourite things that I take from the film is um, is it's an uneasy peace, it's an economic alliance, and at the end, it's shown that maybe that will always result in flashpoints, in violent flashpoints. Mm. But I think you still got to keep at it. You still got to keep at integration. Mm. The film isn't suggesting that we should. Sorry, again, I'm sidetracking myself, but one of my, again, another one of my favourite bits in the film is when Jade, played by Joao Lee, comes to the pizzeria. And it's clear that Sal Fancy has something that. for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, 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 you got it's big a eyes. Of, you got beautiful big eyes. You know. Yeah, what? yeah. It's a mixture of both paternalism and a, a latent attraction. Yeah. And he doesn't quite know how to do it, but he, it manifests in a very genial manner. And she, for her part, she enjoys the attention, maybe because it annoys Mookie, but she enjoys the attention as a young lady uh, uh, who is clearly being found attractive by someone. And I think and she takes it as a synthetic, because it, it, it is a weird mix of fatherly love paternal love and and like you say like a, like a kind of latent attraction and uh i don't know yeah. I, I think she thinks he's a harmless old man right but yeah but it's it's positive that their interaction is entirely positive yeah right? yeah but, it's two people who have yeah. there's boundaries there's clear boundaries and they just have a nice exchange it's it's cute and yeah and that's everybody will have will have had this experience in their time where that's what flirtation is and it's no harm, no foul. Everybody, everybody knows the situation. But I like how Mookie and Pino are not down with it at all. No. <laughs> and there's a, a continuing shot, uh, the camera moving right to left with a cut, right to left across the face of he Mookie. Does that, he does that then... a couple of times. That That's one of the moments. It almost feels like it's slow-mo, but I don't think it is. And you can see, yeah, you yeah. Can see Mookie, you, can see, you, you see the faces, like there's their... Just with such disdain, and there's another moment it happens before everything kicks off. Um, and I'll let you go back to your point. Sorry, but there's the other time he does it, and there must be more than this. The other time he does it is before it all kicks off and sows toward the end. And uh, it's when he says, "We've had a good day today," and he's counting up the register, and he says, uh, "You boys, nothing like a family working together." And it pans over the two sons. Pans it, Mookie. There's always a place for you, and it pans over to Mookie. I, I I don't know what we're supposed to draw from that moment, uh, but everyone looks exhausted and not quite convinced. Of of Sal's um, sell, yeah. selling in the idea that that this has been a good day and uh, and 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 this is, there's nothing better than us like working together. That's because I think that um, the camera properly conveys the subjectivity of those characters. So in the shot we're talking about with Mookie and Pino, um, there's con- there is continuity there because they feel the same way. They do they're both in that moment. They're both. United. A little bit racist. Yeah, yeah. You would presume what you would infer from the film is that um, Sal's wife has died at some point, and he's and now he's you know he's raising two boys on his own. Um, but they don't want a new mother, and they don't. Uh, Pino doesn't want her to be black, and Mookie certainly doesn't want a white guy going anywhere near his sister. And then they have an argument about it. But um, there's a, an, another mo- a moment of subjectivity which I enjoy, and I think this speaks to. The differences in the white experience and the black black experience at the very beginning of the film, Demare shows up to the pizzeria, and there's a a, a wonderfully um, a, a purely from the perspective of Sal, and let's say a white audience, for lack of a better term, there's a, a lovely interaction where Sal knows that Demare's a bum, and he says, "Choose your weapon. You can sweep the stoop." Drops the money, and he says, "I think you dropped something, yeah. Mayor." You know, he gives him a dollar or something. And it's easy for us to think, oh, that's a nice thing for him to do for that poor old man who wants to feel utility. You know, the bloke has no job 
and if he can feel useful for a few moments in a day, yeah. then that that gives and he himself needs to esteem. Buy a beer. Like he does need is it? Yeah, it's a perfectly oh, yeah, legitimate yeah. economic exchange. The guy needs to buy a beer. That one of the next shots yeah. is him, which is a great great moment when he's going to the Korean corner shop and he's like, uh, he's going. He goes to spend the money he got from Sal sweeping the street that day, uh, and. Uh, uh, they say no Miller, no more Miller Lite, no more Miller. You you buy whatever is there, and he, and he, there's that great exchange. Where he says you're you're asking a lot of a man to change his beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in that same scene, if we just watch it with different eyes, if we were to consider it, perhaps from the perspective of a black audience, and we're given we're given the up the uh, we're given the capacity to do that because we can see Mookie's position in that shot. And he's standing with arms folded, much like, almost exactly like the cover of the Criterion Collection DVD. Mm. Um, P- Pino is folding the pizza boxes. Sal is behind the counter. Mookie's positioned between the two of them. And the way that he's looking, it's clear that he's thinking, well, there's a white man that owns a black man, just like he owns me. Right now, he owns Demare. And you can call it charity, but you could also call it interfering. You could call it ownership. You could call it slavery. Mm. You know, because we've already seen as well, remember, again, this is what we've been presented within the diegesis of the film. Pino, get a broom and sweep up front. Mm. Pino, get a broom and sweep out front. Huh? Get a broom and sweep out front. What? Get a broom and sweep out front! See, Pop, it's just what I was telling you. Every time you tell Pino what to do, he tells me to do what you told him what to do. Bring that Pop fears. Look, do me a favor. Get a broom and sweep up. Tell Vito. What are you deaf for a while? Pop asked you. Close out. Vito. Yo, move. What up? Just cooling. Just cooling. He's still late. Yeah, take the broom. The front needs sweeping. Wait a minute. I just got here. You sweep. I bet you Sal asked you first anyway. That's right. So they've already gone down the power pyramid. Yeah. And then at the very bottom is Demare. And yeah. it's sad because, and in that moment, you can see that Mook, well, this is what I get from it anyway. And there's no close-ups. It's just very careful framing by Dickerson and Lee. You can, I think you, what's conveyed in that moment is Spike Lee is looking and he's thinking, this is a man that's lived uh, through incredible social change and social upheaval, um, lived through the Harlem Renaissance, through civil rights. If anything, he should be a cultural leader. We should go to him for knowledge and understanding. Mm. And here he is subordinated to some Italian from Bensonhurst. It doesn't match his station. This isn't right. This isn't right. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right as well. Mookie does try and push back because uh, he's he's aware that there's more of a division of labour and there shouldn't be a power pyramid. He, he pushes back and said, no, I'm not doing your job for you. You know, I bet Pino asked you to do it anyway. <laughs> he tries to encourage Vito in a separate scene to... Um, you know, push back against his brother a bit more. You know, like like fight back against your brother. Don't don't be sub subjugated yeah. to him. Um, go on. Well, one one of later on, one of the binaries that Spike presents is Pino against Vito. They go to the back room and there's that uh, uh, <laughs> slapstick struggle where he swiftly gets him in a headlock. Yeah, and then he's such um, a brotherly uh, wrestle. You know, like it's, yeah, yeah. It's just this stalemate of headlocks. Yeah, it's the alternative. There's many instances where bugging out says to Mookie, stay black. And this is the Italian-American version of that, where <laughs> Pino says, Mookie's not to be trusted. First chance, I, I read, I read. First mm. chance he gets, spear in the back. It's mm. nonsense. Utterly paranoid nonsense, which, ironically enough, by film's end, will have been proven true, at least in the mindset that Pino has. But it's clear that he's saying that, he's angry because he's worried that he's losing his brother. And he from what we see, he doesn't... 
He's all we know is that he has friends that make fun of him. That he has a shit job. He doesn't mention a girlfriend. He, what he does have is a brother that he can pick on out of love, and he's worried he's losing that. Just in the same way that bugging out, of course, he's nervous that he sees Mookie as an ally. But then again, Mookie, for a, a, most of the film, he seems to side with Sal. And then he makes that step across the gulf. Mm. And then suddenly the Italian-Americans are completely marooned and even Demare moves away from them. But, uh, yeah, I like that struggle. You, as I said at the outset, you can find 30 scenes there where we're, get, we're presented with concise duels that convey both sides of the argument. Mm. See, that's the thing. That's not a complex thing to do. It's, uh, it takes application in the same way that I think um, High Rise is one of the best films of the century because almost every scene explains the film just in that one scene mm. and, and it's what edgar wright does as well he makes every line of dialogue count mm. in the uh, in the corner in the three cornettos trilogy most of what his most of what they say is either foreshadowing or a comment on what's happened yeah. or uh representative of the themes of the film on the whole and do the right thing does another thing but it's, it's not complex it's not complicated it just takes application it takes a long time and it, it takes a level of fortitude as well to, yeah, just to stick to your guns and say the film's going to end this way, it's going to present this, it's going to present that, there won't be any easy resolutions because most of the characters in the film are in conflict with one another and those that aren't, as we said, the corner men and Mr. Senior Love Daddy and Mookie for most of it, they're on the sidelines, they're commenting on the action. Mm. I mean, Mookie is strictly capitalist for so much of it. He is, yeah. That's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just give me my money, I've got to get paid. i got to get paid. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he's really good at that as well. It's uh, I remember um, Faison Love, the actor. He's in Elf. He's the the, the big uh, toy shop manager in That's Elf. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. The toy department manager. Yeah. Um, I've seen him on Dinner for Five. He he cracks me up. But he he's got an argument, and it's a compelling argument, even though I think it's bullshit. You never. Oh, you know, you never work with Spike. I don't care to either. Really? <laughs> you don't care to work with. You don't like Spike Lee. But what if he said, "Yo, I want you to be in this movie"? You, I don't know. You I, would think, be in I it? think we met one time, and the energy was fucked up. So you know how black people are. We're like, well, fuck you, then, motherfucker. <laughs> you ain't gonna pay me no money anyway, bitch. So go about your business. <laughs> but, but what um, if it came around and something came up? Would you work with him? I don't know. Tell you the truth. Tell you know. Maybe he made. You know, he killed me with the Malcolm X. I think he fucked it up. You know. Do you? Yeah. He, you don't. You don't. Film a story like that and cash yourself in it as the fucking sidekick. It makes it like a fucking joke, like Malcolm X. But that was only twenty minutes of the movie, though. Nah, but it, but if if you if we're watching Schindler's List and then we go, let's put some uh, uh, comic relief in here. <laughs> you feel me? Yeah, yeah. But wasn't there that character in the book? Though? There was that character in the book. No, but he wasn't. <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey. <isn't> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, you know. I don't think. Yeah, you feel me? I guess. Uh, Are you saying that that fucked up the whole movie for you? I'm just saying that. Like, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck is this sidekick? What the fuck is he But, what, but that was even before Denzel like, went to prison. that was the early prison. days, right? When they, with the hair yeah. relaxing. It was a zoot suit. It was like a film is everything. So your weakest thing in a film, to me, be, can can be turn out the biggest blemish on the film. You yeah. see what I'm saying? If you yeah. got this stupid thing right here, you go, ah. Denzel does a great speech, but then here comes this fucking idiot as the fucking <laughs> joke of the fucking thing, and I don't get it. It's such a serious story. Why do you put yourself in this, you know? Maybe to just humanize That's it. What, but what, it's a human story. It really happened. I know. So it's like, hey, here's some jokes on the side. I didn't get that. Like, you shoot Dr. King's Where story. Where do I do the right thing? 
was cool. I that was cool. Man. I think it's come back to Bamboozle. Was a, was no, Bamboozle was shit. Was I mean, was the shit. I like that. I like it. That's what, and guess who wasn't in the motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> And you think, that's a mad way to think about it. But actually, I kind of, I get your point of view. <laughs> yeah, 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 That is a little yeah. unusual. Martin Scorsese makes cameos, but he didn't cast himself as Tommy mm. in Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah. Because he, I want to be in the movie. <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, I, I think Spike's an adequate actor. And he's he's fantastic and do the right thing. He Because there's always an element of uh, playfulness. And he can undermine the seriousness of situations pretty well. He's got a good face for it. His face, that, that, the eye, he almost does a freeze frame eye roll. Like, you know, he, he's, he's, he'll just look up at <laughs> yeah. a, a situation or a character. Like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like with a kind of not, not even, you know, like kind of, kind of like yeah. look, look about him, you know, it needs that calm pivot. I'm speculating here. But it's a role that doesn't necessarily require anything. And no. that's probably why it's best assayed by the director himself, because he knows precisely what it means. It, it doesn't require uh, an extraordinary amount of personality. Yeah. But it does need to carry the film. And he's... Um, he's actually perfectly cast in it. You're right. He Because if you tried to put anyone else in that, if you put any actor in there, they'd be trying to respond to a brief of some kind. Who is Mookie? You know, what what, what is his background? You know, what did he have for breakfast this morning? You know, mm. you know, they'd be trying to create a character. He he doesn't do that as such. That's not to say he doesn't create a character. But he um he's not passive. He's not an empty vessel. But you're right. He um he's an observer until that key moment at the end when he makes a decision. And we'll, I think we should come to... I think we need to talk for a few minutes. We'll come to that in a minute. But we, we, we need to come to that in a second. The Actually talking about the final conflict and, and what that is about and also the aftermath. I, I really think we need to talk about that. But um, but you're right. He, he is perfectly cast in his own picture as Mookie. I can't imagine anyone else doing that. I, all I can imagine anyone doing is acting... He, he he doesn't seem yeah. to be acting in it, you know. And, and that's in a film that is uh, at times ostentatiously performative yeah. and actorly. Yeah. And, and uh, as we said, and, with the tableaus, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it it requires characters to um, to speak in a way that is not naturalistic to make proclamations. I, I do like that about it, and I think as well, it's also it's um, so fucking bold to write produce, direct a picture, cast yourself as the, as the ostensible lead and put yourself in the Jackie Robinson shirt as an ultimate representation of blackness, of breaking the colour line. And again, watching this, when I was a kid watching that, I just took it as, as red and it, it required, I think, I, I don't know, to, to an extent I needed to grow up to realise, wow, that's such a statement to be in some ways the preeminent black hope among directors in Hollywood and I know that Robert Townsend was there at the same time as well there were a few coming up at that time uh, Charles Burnett but to be that guy and say and I'm going to wear the Jackie Robinson jersey the mm. entire way through mm. to position myself like that oh yeah what what a statement that's his third film like you said at the beginning man <laughs> what yeah how can you do that when you're how can you know how can you know 
to do that when you're 31, 32? Because, you know, Christopher Nolan's a fantastic director, but he's not making the same statements. He's not... I don't feel that he's making... He, he's speaking with the same eloquence on the human condition. No. And with such even-handedness. Spike's been doing this throughout his entire 30s. He's making compelling pictures about... Uh, just about honesty, about honest honesty about race relations and uh, police interactions and um, relations between, the, between sexes. So, one of the criticisms leveled to white audiences over the years one of them i touched on earlier one of them is uh people more focus on the damage to property towards the end so yeah that was the wrong thing the other thing that you and i haven't discussed yet is is actually the catalyst and um for, for this moment so this this day in the simmering heat um has been bubbling temperatures to to absolute boiling point both the literal temperatures and 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 just the tensions, the interracial tensions throughout the day, and um, of course this results in 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 Radio Rahim bugging out, uh, going into cells and um, and and insisting that he put some uh, some black photos on the wall, and um, Radio Rahim's playing the the boombox which we've seen from earlier in the picture playing Fight the Power. Um, and, and he won that previous conflict with the uh, with the Hispanic guys, but uh, in this instance, Sal is screaming at the top of his lungs to to turn that thing down. The black kids who came into the pizza place earlier on, after hours, Sal let him in because it's it's uh, you yeah, know they've, it's, it's they've a tragedy. They've isn't grown it? up on they... his food. Let them in. They love my food. Let yeah. them in. Yeah. So he lets him in. Mookie just wants to go home, but he lets him in. And of course, by this point, though, he's screaming at the top of his lungs to turn this beatbox down. Uh, and the black kids, um, who who and, and earlier in the picture as well, like comp- categorically said to bugging out, no way, man, I'm not supporting you in your boycott. But they can then suddenly yeah. see, hold on, we we've got to take a side here, and and he's starting to threaten Radio Rahim, and then he pulls out the baseball bat, which has been threatened earlier in the picture as well, um, yeah. and 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 Vito uh, like uh, um, uh, uh, it was Pino, I think, uh, like got, got him to take the baseball bat, you know, put it down. And and the baseball bat's significant in itself because we know that baseball bats are used to beat up black people in real life. Uh, so it's symbolic in that sense. And then, of course, he smashes the boombox to pieces. That's when it kicks off. That's when the right kicks off. Some fantastic shots, by the way, um, with, the, uh, with, with the fight uh, in, in the pizzeria. And I love the moment when they all come piling out of the door. How they even did that, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that again it's spielbergian levels of like framing a shot and getting all the heads in there and and getting yeah, getting yeah. everyone to land right is it, it's unreal i don't it looks like it's animated and it's not it's real people yeah. falling out of a door <laughs> um like demare comes in of course and and tries to be that voice of reason um it's an obvious point to make i haven't touched upon it but he does seem to have a kind of like the, the role that shakespearean role of the of the of the um, the fool, you know, where where he, no one listens to him about the whole picture, but he's actually the kind of the voice of reason. So he's the one that's like pleading yeah. for leniency, um, and uh, and things, of course, escalate. The police come, they accost Radio Rahim, and they have the the chokehold on him, which again is significant, isn't it? Because this is the there was three or four incidents in the eighties. What one was the one where they strangled the guy from behind? But that's there. That I think it's yeah. It, Michael Stewart, I think, is the name because they even say it in the film, don't they? They say this is Michael Stewart again. again. Eleanor Bumpers. Yeah, yeah. Michael Stewart, and and so that's significant. Even the way they're holding this guy, 
Um, the Nikes as well that you see hanging off the floor as Radio Raheem is clearly being suspended by this officer. Yeah. And the Nikes, are, his feet are just are shaking and he dies. What's significant is you and I haven't mentioned that yet. And, and, and I think it is important because that is when Mookie does cross the line again we're thinking of it as a western perhaps we see that yeah. we see the two sides completely um standing you know on opposite ends opposite sides of the street and um and and mookie has this moment where he's standing with the italian americans and then sees what happens and crosses literally crosses the border to uh, to go on the other side i wanted to get into that because i'd never heard your explanation actually of of, of that moment when mookie clearly makes the he says you do what you've got to do <laughs> sal says you do what you've got to do and that he, t- yeah. he takes the moment to, to go get the trash can throw it through the window i hadn't thought of what you'd said i had what, how you'd articulated it before that actually this is the first time mookie takes a side so yeah do the right thing maybe it's not a question of violence maybe it's not a question of non-violence or whatever but it's more a question of participation. So at least he gets off the fence. At least he takes a side. So I, I think that's significant. Yeah. But the thing I didn't want to lose sight of, which is so easy to do, because there's so much going on in this picture, is someone dies. Uh, you can hear yeah. the other police officer as well. It's really intense. Yeah, he says, Gary, that's enough. And he says, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, in, in real life, that's Rick Ayala. That's Danny's son. He's in Jungle Fever as well. Him and Miguel Sandoval reprise their roles in Jungle Fever. I, I want to rewind back briefly to... Uh, to, to how it all kicks off, what what you see there in the pizzeria then is that Sal destroys Radio Raheem. I mean, it's his fucking name. It's his identity, but mm. Sal destroys the only way the bloke has of expressing himself or feels that he has of expressing himself. Um, I, I was reading Guerrero's insights into it in the BFI Classics little book. I, I mean, I picked it up 15 years ago and I, I love to reread it a cu- uh, once every couple of years. And he talks about how there's these three mad prophets that by the end of the film are aligned together. And it's partly because um, they can't find uh, kinship for their political cause anywhere else. You know, Bugging Out and Radio Rahim and then joined by Smiley. And all of them have um, uh, the way in which they express themselves has become perverse. Their methods of communication have broken down. So as we say, like, Radio Rahim lets public enemy speak for him, even though, as I said, uh, when he's talking to Mookie, it's pretty eloquent. Although I love how Mookie's response is, there it is, love and hate. <laughs> you know, yeah. he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He he likes the bloke, but it doesn't mean anything to him. It's all about that paper. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, uh, when Demare earlier on says to him, "You know, Doctor, you listen to me. Always do the right thing." Is that it? I got it. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm gone. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, it, it's it's it doesn't. I mean, these are the things that, that we, we should imagine that as a character, those things are percolating in his mind during the rest of the day. Yeah. That's why that's why that's why they're put on screen. That's why they're shown to us. But you've got, um, yeah, Radio Rahim can only communicate through the boombox. Uh, Bugging Out has he has an idea. It's, it's a, a perverse way of trying to just have an impact on his community. He's clearly he will have a negative impact, but he wants to be heard in his boycott and his voice hasn't been heard. And, and that's what we should consider. And Smiley, of course, I th- it's not really clear what affliction he from which he suffers. It's probably cerebral palsy, maybe. But he wants to tell people about Martin and Malcolm. But his stammer makes him unintelligible. Mm. And then these three people that can't communicate properly, that have been left out of the discourse, find each other, radicalise each other, and this is the consequences. And that's the, the key problem. I think you and I, Luke, like the older you get, the more you realise... 
all you want is someone to talk to. Mm. <laughs> you just want someone to talk to so you can... I even saw this out in the world not too long ago. I was at a stand-up night. I was watching Aiden, and one of the other comics that performed that night was a bloke who'd only done it once before. And when he's on stage, Somali fella with a puffer jacket, uh, but his honesty was what turned me on to him. Um, there was there was uh, absolutely no artifice to it at all. It really did seem like he'd come in off the street. And what he said to us was, I just need someone to talk to. I just need someone to tell these things to. And I know that's how comedians talk anyway. But with him, it felt absolutely real that this fella had ideas in his mind and he needed to put them, he needed to channel them in a positive manner. Otherwise, they'd stew and fester and he'd go nuts. We've all been in that situation. I'm in that situation almost daily where you can't help but want to communicate what you're feeling. And that's the problem with these three characters. They don't have any positive receptacle for what they need to communicate. And it's the three of them that band together, these mad prophets, as Guerrero says, that band together to utterly fuck up everything, you know, accidentally. Um, so then his, his primary method of communication is destroyed. It's, it's his identity, and it's been broken down in front of him. And interestingly, he did shut off the boombox earlier when so earlier on in the film when he orders his two slices yeah and he says put some more mozzarella on that motherfucker yeah 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 uh, he, you know um and then they spill out and um i do think that there's a couple of things i think about i th- i think about almost weekly that line motherfucker window radio rahim is dead that is pivotal because that as you've said the reaction at the time i mean spike lee was surprised but not really surprised because he's used to caucasians if i can put it in those terms he found it entirely predictable that people came to him and then he had to say, you know, someone's dead. Mm. That was property. This man's life has been extinguished. Mm. And then the other thing is that it's the cops. Now, I don't suppose there would have been a particularly happy ending if there hadn't been an intervention, but you got off... I would still... with the. I'm not saying this is inferred, but inherent within the community that's established by Spike is that they would have resolved their differences. I mean, it did look like Radio Rahim was going to kill Sal. Well, he but... is strangling him, isn't it? You know, yeah. which is significant. He's, got, he's on top of Sal, and he's got his hands around his neck. There's but a maybe, part of me, there's they're... a shred of me that wants to think, there's a, the, the naive part of me wants to go, oh, I wish, he, I wish there wasn't a shot of that. Because it would be so much easier to make yeah. a call then that, um, that it... That, that there, you know, was he trying to kill Sal? In which case... I'm not saying loss of life, any loss of life is, is what you want, no. but in, in which case it makes it easier to kind of rash post-rationalise that oh it resulted in his death, but there he was a he, he was being bad and it, it, he set himself up, um, but you know in cinematic terms, uh, of course the film that that's the, that's the naive part of me. The film, like as we've said, never makes anything easy and it never makes anything clear cut. Yeah, man, no pulled punches. Just like in the same way that Radio Rahim is one of the least sympathetic characters. Yeah, he's in intimidating the film. throughout it, the whole he, picture. Yeah, he's basically a neighbourhood bully from what we see. Mm. Uh, and he's the one that dies. And that's challenging the audience to care about, you know, to to express compassion for the least compassionate person. Mm. And and again, with Bugging Out, he's fucking annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, um, in Lebowski when dude says, yeah, Walter, you're right, but you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. Or, uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's a... Uh, his his point of view is in some ways legitimate, but the way everything else about him is irritating. Yeah, and offensive. he's trying to, he's even, trying to instigate to a, and be an instigator, and you know, no one wants anything yeah. to do with him. 
Yeah, it is all in the wrong direction. And then as well, like you see how um, Smiley's irritating to characters within the film as well. It's not very nice to say that about him because he's disabled. Mookie treats him with disdain at certain points, and um, uh, most of the characters do. They they see him as uh, as uh, just as annoying. Typically brave and honest of Spike to present uh, that trio as the fellas that bring it all down. Um, but yeah, I, I, we should never overlook that it's the police that kill Radio Rahim, that they are, that the, the riot is as a result of their actions, as a direct result. We can't infer that Radio Rahim would have killed Sal. No. It, it, it may have gone down like that. It may have been that people jumped in. I mean, if we're thinking about the reality of a situation like that, um, if a, uh, an Italian-American, if a Caucasian were killed in a black area, it would be poison for the community for months and years. Mm. It'd be crawling with police. It's something that Sam Jackson says in Die Hard with a Vengeance, but it would be crawling with police forever. Mm. In, in real terms, somebody would have stepped in, even if it was just Pino with a baseball bat or something. Mm. But it's the, police that, it's the police that escalate it, you know, and it's the police that... They're the malign influence in the film, and I suppose that's... I mean, it's honest, and it, it doesn't have to be symbolic, but it's also, in a way, like um, the interference of the bureaucracy and the uh, institution of white America that does for this community. This community could, could probably find a peace, uh, an uneasy peace in perpetuity, were it not for the messages coming from the top. Pino's a racist, but Sal's got him under control. Mm. And there are other malign influences within the community, anti-community influences like Radio Rahim. He's a bully, but they've he's also under control as well. Mm. And it takes I mean, we haven't even mentioned how well uh, that what it takes to get everybody to this boiling point, And it's that that it's literally the hottest day of the year. And also the way that Dickerson conveys heat through cinema is as startling as what Storaro does in Apocalypse Now. Because I watch Apocalypse Now, and you have to remind yourself that Vietnam didn't actually look like that. But we think it does, mm. because of the how good Coppola and Storaro were on that. Bedford-Syverston, on a hot day, may not literally look like do the right thing, but fuck literally. Mm. Because what's on screen, that to me is a hot day. Mm. What they accomplished there, that's a hot day. Mm. Um, with with the, not just the red brick behind the corner men... But as you've said, the crane shots showing everybody fanning themselves. Yeah, the, yeah. there's lots of um, lit, just ripple effects. I think they were putting heaters under the camera um, to get the ripple mm, effects. Yeah. Um, there's moments in the documentary that was made at the time uh, where you, you actually see some of the cast members um, as well. Um, uh, so, like, Sal is, is, like, spraying water on himself before a scene. You know, like that. They were doing everything they could. What's quite funny as well is is to see Spike. Um, he he calls out moments because obviously they're filming over an eight week period. It's supposed to be one day, but they have to get the sense that there's different times of day, and they have to get the sense that the heat is consistent throughout the day as well. The hottest moment, I think, being mid afternoon. And actually, he moment he he shows you. He, it's very difficult to unsee, but he points out moments where behind a character there'll just be a washed out sky. So I actually I think when they're uh, when the police officers are confronting the um, uh, Italian American. Uh, during the, the the water hydrant scene when the, the guys have yeah. sprayed his car there's actually washed out sky behind them you know they've just had this big um, kind of water fight but um 
you realize oh yeah i guess it's really just overcast and humid and they've, they've yeah. but they've got they've got they've got the color filters they've got the, 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 they've given it that rich warm um lens i actually only have the film on dvd and i've seen some clips in hd and I, i'd be quite keen to watch it on blu-ray i'd, I'd be quite keen to watch it in hd because it does pop yeah. pop a bit more uh, not to say that it doesn't on dvd but the, the, i think the colors are vibrant um, so I'd be interested to do that, and I wonder if it's even going to be on 4K one day. But um... I'm very careful. I'm very, as you know, I'm very careful about upgrades, and I've got it on Criterion DVD. Mm. Uh, recently, I picked up the Criterion Laser, mm. and with a picture like this, I think it's self-negating if I don't sometime next year pick up the Blu-ray mm. as well, because mm. um, I. I need to see every film in the best possible format. I mean, it's like Burns said. We think that films from the 80s look shit, but that's only because we never saw them at the cinema. Mm. And when I say look shit, I don't mean... Obviously, like the, the cinematography by Kovacs on Ghostbusters, that's what we think of New York to be, mm. isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. When we think, yeah. Of, when we think of pre-clean-up 1980s New York, we imagine that cinematography by Kovacs. But we don't necessarily think of it like Beverly Hills Cop and Trading Places. We don't consider that when they were projected in a cinema in 1983, in 1984, that it was with the acuity that we have in cinemas today. Yeah. And, and with that level of fidelity. And uh, I've been thinking about that more over time. And, watching um, something on Blu-ray... Strike Blu me down for saying it, but... Watching something in HD on Blu-ray on a decent telly and that, it is incredible. You, you see the film grain. Um, yeah. It really is the best representation that you'll get. I mean, I know 4K is now coming in. I, I'm yet to watch a film in 4K. Here we are, two guys doing a film podcast. Uh, we mostly watch film on, uh, you know, <laughs> Laserdisc and uh, uh, and uh, and DVD. Um, but uh, yeah. but but Blu-ray films. Uh, I mean, mostly it's money that I don't I don't have the money to to replace my collection of some 600 mm. films. But um, it is incredible to to watch this stuff. Um, well, she says it, she says that in Jackie Brown. He says you never really. The late great Robert Forster said you never really got with the CD revolution. And she says, "Oh, I've got my vinyls. I can't start again." Mm. Yeah, exactly. And there is that attitude as well too. Like, I mean, I might have three, four hundred DVDs. I don't really want to replace every one of those no. because then the original becomes without value. And I mean, VH, as you know, tapes and lasers. I can knock out. I can get a bit of money on those DVDs, as you know. You get like ten of them for a fiver from CEX, and then you know someone like you who has the uh, the appreciation of it. You think I've got two directors' commentaries on this disc. Yeah, I've got a, an hour documentary. I've deleted scenes, trailers, yeah, um, for fifty webisodes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absurd. Yeah. The the level of uh, supplemental material. Not that this is the funny thing, like. Maybe people didn't buy DVDs very quickly. By about 2000, people weren't buying DVDs for those things. But even me, I mean, I'm going back through my collections and realising, God damn, I wish I'd watched this doc an hour 10 years ago. Mm. It's really informative. I really, I've got a greater appreciation for the film. Oh, mate, I, that's I what that's... I was buying DVDs for mostly, was, was the special yeah. features. Yeah. And I really like the, the Do the Right that... Thing edition I've got from 2001. I really do like that era in the 2000s when they were porting over the stuff that was on the lasers. Uh, that's yeah, good fun, yeah. yeah. I presume it's that, unless Spike has done a new commentary, and it would make sense if he had done an updated commentary uh, for the Blu-ray, I wouldn't be surprised if um, that 1995 laser commentary is what's on the current release by Criterion. The final word. all those years. 
Uh, and um, it's the same with uh, with the new line special edition boogie nights that I have. Mm. Is PT's commentary from the Criterion Laserdisc. I would like it if modern cineasts heard these occasional references to Laserdiscs and investigated a little bit because Laserdisc obviously has its limitations. But what it was really important for was the promotion of the special edition and also for supplementary materials. Criterion did fantastic work there in getting academics and then later technicians and directors to drop commentary tracks. And those are to what you and I enjoy doing and what we try to do for um for the electronic labyrinth. That's integral. You need these opinions. It's it's great to immerse yourself in not just uh, uh, a critical understanding of the film, but also the technical understanding and little things like when Ernest Dickerson is talking about um, he needed a west east street because he needed mm. uh, I I can't even quite remember. Yeah, but so he needed it, the sun. It's because the sun would what was the it? sun rises in the west, sets in the east. Uh, sorry, rises in the east, sets in the west. Um, so yeah. it, the idea being that it's long if if the street was north to south. Oh, now I'm getting confused. The whole idea was you would have you would ha- at any point in the day you would have one shady side of the street. That was the point. So you, you could you could be in the shade, you could you could photograph the, the sunny side. And you you could That's you could it. switch yeah, that up yeah. um, throughout the day. So you'd get the maximum amount of light, you know, out of out, out of the day. It was the most efficient way to kind of shoot it. That was what they were thinking. And and commentaries and supplemental materials, they're the kind of it's those conversations that make me consider how far above my own understanding cinema is a perfect synthesis of art and science cinematographers deakins and dickerson they're scientists to me when they're talking about f-stops lenses and you realize fuck i left this behind at age 15 because i could just about scrape a c in physics Mm. and this is i I really i don't understand any of this Mm. i know like acting in front of a camera making people laugh but then i'm increasingly infatuated with the science of cinema. Not quite sure how we got into this, but I I bloody love commentaries. <laughs> Everybody has this impulse. I've talked about this before. There's people that they watch Harry Potter or they, they watch the Marvel pictures and they, they feel like they want to live in that world or maybe with Avatar they want to live in that world. And I have the same thing with Boogie Nights, with the films that I appreciate. But it's also that I, I want there to be no limit to what I can learn about a film. I watch a picture like Zodiac. Uh I watch that film, I watch it again. And then once you've watched it four or five times, you listen to the commentaries. You listen to each of those two or three times and you want more information about the film because you you want to luxuriate in it for as long as possible. You want that. You want to be in it, in the film. And I want to be in Do the Right Thing. That's one of the things that it does. You can utterly imagine yourself on those streets with those characters. It's one of the reasons that uh, I've always... I'm, 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 oh my god I don't want to trivialise it but because the world is so alive because those characters feel so real because um, you know you fall in love with, with so many of them um, and even if you yeah. don't fall in love with them you feel like uh, you know them and that they annoy you and you see them every day um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to I, I've always wanted and I've used to I've joked about this with Taylor uh, who, who from Local Trouble Podcast over the years from uni onwards we always joked I'd love a stoop we need a stoop. We need to live in a house with yeah. a stoop. Uh, that was always our yeah. our, uh, our big aim uh, in life. You know, seeing was our big aspiration. Um, uh, there's nowhere to shoehorn this in. You might want to delete this, but I really want to give a good shout out as well to an incredible technical shot. So you're talking about the technicality, technical elements yeah. of cinema. 
Uh, and I do think we need to end on the aftermath um, because most films um, take two lane, two lane blacktop. One of my uh, favorite like uh, new new cinema moments of the seventies. Dennis Wilson uh, is the mechanic. James Taylor as the driver. Uh, they're drag racers, and the film ends as they're drag racing, seemingly into infinity uh, and to their deaths. You know something is going to go badly wrong. The film ends. Uh, and it ends in a really stylistically interesting way where um, we're racing into the sunset and then it feels like the film has like burnt within the camera and it feels like something's gone wrong in the projection booth. And then we, we, we fade to black and we cut to credits. Now, we do the right thing. Things explode uh, over. and uh, and But the next day, everyone has to wake up and go back to work. And I want to talk about that in a second. Yeah. But... Uh, in this in this period, I want to talk about well, that in a second and what that means uh, for the characters and what that is saying as well uh, in terms of the film. But from a technical point of view, you were talking about the technical moments of cinema there a second ago. And um, I really would like to give a particular shout out to a shot that I, I genuinely don't know how they did it. Someone who understands camera work can tell me. But you've got um, Mother, Sister and Demare. Um, the mayor wakes up in, is it her apartment? Is she looked after him, um, over the night, yeah. the course of the night and they are in bed in the back room of the very long, deep house. And you think that you're there in close up with them and you, and you're there in the room with them. And then the camera starts to pan back as they get out of bed. They're talking about the day, the night before they're talking about the events they're talking about. And from a character point of view, it's wonderful that she's she's softened and she sees um, the good that he's trying to do, and and she sees that there's actually they're actually the same person. They're they're both you know just um, they they both want the same things from the world. They both have the same perspective on the world. And um, yeah, they're 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 stewards of the neighbourhood, and yeah. as they have a responsibility, a civic responsibility to that neighbourhood. Absolutely. Uh, it's a wonderful moment, really heartwarming. So there's a real character arc there for the two of them. Uh, and, and, and as they get up out of bed and they start to walk through the house, we continue to move back. And then before we know it, the camera's left the house. We've left them at the window looking out on the street and the camera's continuing to, to, to pan backward. And, um, and then we're, before we know it, we're in the street. And then the camera pans from from left to right across the street, and as we as we see the street going about its day, um, and waking up for that for that next day, I do not know how they did that. Uh, it's it's a remarkable technical achievement. I'm sure it's done with various lenses, various zooms, and and like a dolly shot, crane, whatever. Uh, it's a combination of all these things. But in terms of that, like you said, the technical level of cinema is astonishing. It's a little indie flick. They they use every cinematic trick in the book to pull off the uh, the heat of the day and the sense of community, the tapestry of the neighbourhood. Um, to great effect. And uh, yeah, uh, it puts us firmly in the end of the movie, the aftermath of the movie as well, as, as we observe, the, observe a community going about its day following a tragedy. I'll have to go back and check out that shot. Oh, mate, it's I, incredible. It's, it's, it will blow your mind. It's, so, it's, a, it's another good example where the film's been with me for so long, I completely lose sight of the artifice of it and that it isn't something that happened, but rather it's technicians have created this work for me to convey messages, you know? Because mm. it, it just... Uh, 
as we've said, as stagey as it is deliberately at times, it never doesn't feel real. Mm. Oh, it feels very that's, natural. That's, 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 that's mad yeah, to me. It feels incredibly natural, but when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of it, you realise, Jesus Christ, that must have been the whole day on that one shot. How did they yeah. do it? I don't know. The entire picture doesn't even include the classic double dolly that Spike does. Maybe he coined it in Jungle Fever. It's definitely in Jungle Fever. I can't remember if he does it in school days. It would be odd if he'd pioneered it in one of the first two pictures and didn't use it and do the right thing. Mm. Um, but it's the double dolly that... Uh, one of the, the my favourite things about Black Klansman is that it waits until the very end of the picture mm. and then it's used only in that shot in the corridor where... Um, uh, is it? It's John David Washington, I think, isn't mm. it? Denzel's kid. But the two leads, the um, the lady and the man, step out into the into the corridor, and then they move forward. And it, I, I was probably saying eighteen different things, none of which I completely got a handle on. But mm. it was very well deployed there. Then we're on the street, and it's the next day, and that's that's the honesty of it as well. Is that uh, as um, Mr. Senior Love Daddy says, "Are we going to live together? Together, are we going to live?" Mm. I saw it, but I didn't believe it. Mm. I didn't believe what I saw. Mm. Unlike what's typical of Hollywood pictures where the uh, lessons are learned and there is a happy ending, this this doesn't have that. It has a, essentially a, a, a miserable ending where a bloke dies and uh, a bastion of the community is ruined mm. and a man is on his knees. And it's it, in that moment as well, uh, Daniello gives a very good performance. And when he's doing with the... Um, with his arms in front of him saying, these hands, with these fucking hands. Mm. But there's an accord, isn't there? Once again, and I think, even if only because, this is one of the things <laughs> that America does get right, in the melting pot, everyone is economically dependent upon one another. And in that environment, when you're not siloed off, when you are up in each other's shit, there's no room, especially in the working class. My mum's always said this to me. There's no room to have airs and graces and turn your nose up to... Uh, where money comes from or who's given you a job or who will work for you. Mm. The working class doesn't have that luxury. And I really appreciate that message, which I think whether Spike's saying it or not, the message that I take from it is that we just got to just got to get up and go and do it again. No matter what happens, you've got to keep trying. Mm. It's not even a heroic act. I wouldn't want to uh, miscategorize it as that. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's not heroic. It's it's the fact that it's just the reality of the situation that you've got to get up and go to work again, or you've got to get up and do, just go about your day. Um, it's it's um, the uh, it's the it's a very gritty, realistic take on life. You know, it's not it's not the Hollywood ending like you say, where lessons are learnt. There's a summing up at the end. Uh, we don't have that whatsoever. We have a community that has to go about its day. One of the things I like as well is the the panning shot over the just the shoes and the the detritus from the night yeah. before. Um, because like you like you said, the the um the water cannons were turned on the crowd. Um, so we have all of that to deal with. Um. We have the final transaction as well. Moogie had to get his money, had to get his money. Um, and, and, and this is the final moment between Sal and Moogie. What do you want? I want my money, I want to get paid. You don't work here no more. Sal, I want my money. Your money couldn't begin to pay for the winter you broke. Motherfucker, when the Raider Rahim is dead. I know he's dead, I was here, you remember? He's dead because of his buddy. That cut, suck it, started all this shit. 
He's responsible for that kid's death. And he wanted to close me, and you stood there like a fuck, and you watched him burn me down. I watched it. I also watched the cops murder Raider Raheem. You didn't get over from the fucking insurance anyway, Sal. You know the deal. What the fuck is wrong with you? This ain't about money. I could give a fuck about money. You see this fucking place? I built this fucking place with my bare fucking hands. Every light socket, every piece of tile. Me with these fucking hands. You know what the fuck that means? Yeah, it means pay me my motherfucking money. That's what it means, Sal. Okay. How much do I owe you? My salary is two fifty. Two fifty a week. One. That's three. That's four. And that's five. You got five hundred dollars. You're a rich fucking man. Are you happy? You happy? You got your fucking pay. Now leave me alone, huh? Sal, my salary is two fifty a week, all right? I owe you fifty bucks. Keep it. You keep it. You keep it. You keep it. No, you keep it. You keep it. I don't believe this shit. Believe it. Again, what conclusions are we supposed to draw from it? Mookie just destroyed this guy's business in a physical sense. Um, he didn't necessarily start the fight, but he finished it. Um, and, uh, yeah. and and he still went back for his money the next day. Uh, so A, is that right? He, he has a kid to keep, so he had to, that's why he had to do it. Um, Mookie gives him the change and then, and then, and then yeah. but, but keeps the extra 50 that he can't give back and then says, well, now I owe you 50. Um, is that the right thing? You know, it's it's. I love it. It's that to me. That's um. You could call it a metropolitan sensibility. If it were here, we'd say it's a London sensibility. That that to me, that's the summation of a New York sensibility. No matter the circumstances, you want your money, but you don't want more than you're owed. You just want what you're owed. Mm. And where, where we where we find the neighbourhood there as well. Um, we haven't spoken at all. And uh, as a, as a consequence, we haven't spoken enough about Rosie Perez as Tina. She is very good, and it's 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 almost mind blowing mm. that that the, the way that she, what she's asked to do to open the film, to uh, like Bye Bye Birdie with Anne Margaret, which we might recall from Mad Men. There was an episode that pivoted on that. This this debutant actress, sorry, this debutant actor, carry the first two and a half three minutes through dance when she's neither a professional dancer or a professional actor. Marvelous, but yeah. As we as we open at the very end of the film, as we open a new day, Heramuki are arguing once again. You know, she's concerned that he's uh, abnegating his responsibilities, and so in some ways the pieces are reset. It's as you were. It's a, it, in some ways it's a grim reset, and someone has died, and um, but there will be rebuilding. I mean, Mr. Senior Love Daddy is speaking in exactly the same way. You know, yeah. The community feels to an extent it feels the same. There are key differences, you know. Uh, Demare's waking up next to mother sister rather than alone. Mm. But uh, so so what, what what do you what do you make of all of the end of it then in summary? Well, like I said, and like I said, said to death, it doesn't ask you to draw ask you to draw your own conclusions. It doesn't spoon feed you. It doesn't it doesn't talk down to you. That's the strength of the film. It does give you everything you need though, because um, uh, another way of looking at it, it's uh, it makes very clear love and hate. Martin and Malcolm. Mm-hmm. It has the quotes at the end, mm-hmm. um, so it, it gives you. This is it. It's, it's like a, a good teacher. It gives you the tools to understanding, just like Public Enemy did. That was one of the best things about Public Enemy. Mm. And later, rap. I, I won't get into the big argument, but one of the best things about Public Enemy was that they 
with them it was always listen, understand. Yeah. Under- you should like the Clash. It's the same principle. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the Clash is the punk equivalent. We'll set out the world for you, and we'll provide you with the tools towards understanding. Yeah. Do the right thing does that spectacularly well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think um, I, I need to mention as well. This is a reading. It's one of my several readings of the ending. It's one we need to draw attention to, and it's that Mookie destroys the pizzeria, but in doing so, he definitely saves their lives. I don't think that that's necessarily Spike's primary uh, comment, but they would have killed Sal and his sons. Mm. You know, and that wouldn't have been right. It would have been murder. It would have been understandable. They could have torn them to pieces. And what Mookie did saved their lives and di- and directed that anger towards something else, something that could be rebuilt, unlike Radio Raheem. I don't, as I say, I, I don't think Spike's saying that. I think he, Spike is somewhat mischievous. I think he might say that's a white opinion mm. if I were to say that to him. But definitely the community saw a man murdered and that cannot be undone. Mm. And Mookie's actions, although serious, they, they ensured that that couldn't be repeated. That there would be no more murders that night. Yeah, it uh, had hadn't even occurred to me, but it's 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 a good point. So in some ways, is a that, that's a heroic act. But again, the film would never the film would never position it like that. It's far too smart for that. It's far too real about it. There are certainly no heroes in the film. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel that way. Every every character is is flawed. Uh, everyone has that. I know that's the way one should try and write a character, but um, everyone, no one's completely virtuous. You know, everyone is flawed, um, and it plays on that quite clearly throughout the whole piece. Whether they're observers, whether they're passive, whether they're antagonists, instigators, um, they're all people that you know have some kind of point of view, uh, and uh, and and they're and and they're flawed. Uh, each and every one of them. Um, no, no one's completely virtuous. I mean, Mookie, for God's sake, clearly is like. Not a good dad, you know. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a deadbeat dad. He's an absolute he's dead, deadbeat has, has loser, yeah. and 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 and, it, and it, we've shown very clearly that he's not doesn't even work that hard, you know. He doesn't even work yeah, hard yeah. for the dollar that he keeps on about, you know. And uh, he disappears for long periods of time throughout the day, and uh, yeah, he's he's feckless and he's shiftless, bunking at his sisters. Uh, he's an irritation to her, quite literally. He wakes her up by flicking her in the face. And it, it's, <laughs> it's significant as well that the sister is the younger sister, um, but but is 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 angry with him for being like a deadbeat and a loser. So so the, yeah. the, the role is reversed there in the sense that you know you would normally stereotypically would expect an older sibling to to kind of like be trying to lead from that sense, but it's his little sister um, telling him you're a deadbeat. <laughs> Yeah, and again, it's it's courageous and it's resolute for a director to to offer that representation of black youth, especially one which, uh, unlike some black cinema mm. or African American cinema, which will be consumed by a white audience, mm. and to have that representation and say, deal with it. Mm. This bloke isn't virtuous. Mm-hmm. This bloke's a man. He's a man like any one of mm. us. Don't expect me to. You know, there's always that notion that if if I can put it simply. Diane Abbott will say, I don't mean to pick on her, but Diane Abbott will say one thing in white society and she'll say another more realistic, more honest thing when she feels more comfortable among a more receptive 
um, audience, an audience which isn't going to twist her words or an audience which isn't already prejudiced against her own community. But for Spike to come out with this and show these characters and have the, you know, the three guys on the corner that do nothing. Mm. One of the things that the film is, is it's a, it's a call to participation. As Mr. Senior Love Daddy says at the end, he says, register to vote. Yeah. And Spike said that himself. He wanted to get cock out. He has graffiti in the picture that says dump cock. He wanted him gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, 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 that's what should be taken from the film. Yes, there's love and there's hate and there's violence and non-violence, but also just participate. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and I, I hadn't actually thought of that film uh, in that way. So that's, uh, so I'm really glad we had the conversation and that I've got your reading on it. That's, I mean, that is positive. That is a positive message. Yeah, thank you very much, Luke. Um, as I was saying, just like the comic a few weeks ago that I saw, I needed to talk about this. I needed uh, just... Uh, it was the same with Boogie Nights when I watched that seven times in a year and I felt it building within me and I needed to some way... Uh, <laughs> Not 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 vent, but allow that to come out in a positive way, mm. rather than just mulling it over for months <laughs> on end. But thank you so much. I, you've um, I may even as we finish recording, I may go and look at that shot again because it passed me by. This, it's such a rich film. It will blow. The, that years shot on. Will, will blow your mind. Uh, and for for me, anyone at home, I know that I was talking to some people at work this week, uh, saying that I was going to be uh, the latest episode of the podcast was going to be on Do the Right Thing. And um, unlike the last episode where we, we on local trouble, we were touching on the Phantom Menace. A lot of people understood that uh, what the Phantom Menace is that they've seen it, and uh, we even we've had some feedback on the Facebook page um, from people writing in to say that they really enjoyed the episode. Do the right thing and start contrast is is not a particularly well known film really, and uh, in the mainstream. And people at work today have been saying, "Oh, you know, tell me about it. You know, what's it all about?" And I know that we didn't do like a spoiler. Wow. We didn't do a spoiler alert or anything up front. For for me, it's almost irrelevant. Like, yes, of course, if you see the film with spoiler free, that's 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 great and 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 has that impact. But for, for me, I you know, hopefully, if anyone at home hasn't seen the picture and is inspired by the conversation we've had, it's one of those things. Like, just please do seek it out and 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 watch it. Whether that's um, just getting the DVD or, or, or whatever it might be, with, with these films as well, you know, I, I, one of the pleasures that I have doing the podcast is I get to watch these things with my wife, and she hasn't necessarily seen all of all of these pictures. Do the right thing was a new one for her, and, and seeing through her eyes, you know, she was very tremendously powerful uh, and meant 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 a lot mm. to her. So, um, and uh, you raise a good point. Boogie Nights is one that I should um, uh, roll out as well. She, she's yet to see Boogie Nights <laughs> as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope for for anyone, it's not to patronise to tell people to suck eggs, you know. Hopefully, it's provided provided someone with, if you have, haven't seen the picture with an avenue to go down and and, and a door to knock on, um, because it's a it's a really powerful film and um, one that has shaped my worldview and made me who I am. Uh, and there's very like the albums of the Clash, records by Public Enemy. Uh, there's there's not there's not loads of films you can actually say that about, you know, yeah, there are lots of them, but in the grand scheme of things, um, that they're actually in the minority really. Uh, so it's, um, it's definitely one that, you know, I'd, I'd be buried with, I'd be stranded on a desert Island with, you know, I'd, I'd have tattooed on my heart, you know? Yeah. I think the reason for that and the reason why it's my opinion that it's the best Hollywood film of the last 30 years, maybe the best in my lifetime is is precisely because of that all human life is there watching it a couple of days ago i cried but i laughed a lot as well 
it, that, that's its level of honesty. It's, it's both sad and happy and it makes you furious, but it also it engages you. When we say it's powerful and it's important, I couldn't abide it if people thought that meant it was austere or monolithic uh, or um, uh, encased in amber because it's none of those things. It's so alive. It's so, it's so relevant and alive and funny and uh, enjoyable, for the most part enjoyable, in the same way that Boogie Nights is... Um, that's a film about the rise and f- uh, the rise and fall of some very some deeply unhappy characters, surrounded by drugs and vice. But it's really funny most of the time. <laughs> Little boy, man, I I think you've you've paid appropriate tribute to do the right thing. I was um, I was anxious to get it right, and I feel that I feel that we've done it some level of justice. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and it's nice, to, it's nice to come full circle. It really is. Um, you inspired me to seek the picture out in my early 20s. Um, and it did change my life. Um, I, I don't use that term too often. Um, and and I'm, I, it's a term that's certainly thrown around an awful lot these days. Um, the obvious example is in Garden State when Natalie Portman said the shins will change your life. I don't think they changed anyone's life. But um, I would I would reserve it for this film uh, to say that it did. Yeah. Uh, Just like The Clash did and, and, you know, Public Enemy, those kind of things. So, yeah, thanks, Fletch. Um, I feel like we've come full circle and had been able to have a meeting of minds on it. I feel like you gave I feel like you tipped me off to this um, over 10 years ago. And now we're finally comparing notes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Dang, that's probably why we had so much to say about it. <laughs> I won't prattle on much longer, but that's one of the things with films, and that's why I find film watching a collective experience. Uh, that doesn't mean I have to go to the pictures with somebody, but I love watching films with people because then there's a shared experience there, and it's not just me having my thoughts about it, but it's sharing those thoughts and understanding other people's points of view on mm. that as well. Uh, I find it a collective endeavour. That's one of the things I really enjoy about it. Watching a film on the sofa with your wife and experiencing that those emotions together, mm. that's what be, being a cineast is for me. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Luke. I've really enjoyed it myself. You can continue to keep up with us on Instagram, Facebook, on Spotify and on iTunes and Stitcher. Are we still stitching? We're still stitching, yeah. Cool, yeah, that's where you can listen to us, or you may even be listening to us on our own website, onesensationalshot.com, with the eBay One Sensational Shop, if you'd like to browse our wares and make a contribution to the running of the site. Otherwise, we hope that it's going to be a very fruitful autumn and winter on onesensationalshot.com. There'll be more articles, there'll be more podcasts. We've also got, uh, as a companion piece to this foray into the Electronic Labyrinth, we've uh, myself and Aidan McCaffrey chatting about Do the Right Thing on the Evening Glass as well. I hope you enjoy that too. I'm sure there's a few contentious opinions in there, but it's, uh, what was it? What? Hal Hinson, in his 1989 review of Do the Right Thing in the Washington Post, he called it a moral workout. I wonder if we should get that as a, I wonder if that should be our rubric. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. One sensational shot, a moral workout. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really really good way of putting it. I think you got your headline right there.